All right, welcome to Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we are going to be talking about a movie from a director who we love, but it's a movie we didn't quite love. And you know, before I get into my usual top of the show spiel and also getting into the conversation itself, I did want to address uh, something I also brought up on Twitter, which by the way, you should follow us on Twitter at PiecingPod. Um, but it does seem like I have been not not liking a lot of movies lately. Uh, I should say a lot of movies, but a few movies, big, big movies, big releases that I was surprised I didn't like. I was really surprised about this one and uh, First Man I didn't love. And, you know, I just wanted to be known that uh, I'm not someone who does this to go and talk crap about a bunch of movies. Uh, I love movies. I love all kinds of movies. I love movies that are generally beloved, and I love movies that are uh, generally considered crap. Um, You know, I I like what I like, and that's what it is. And, um, you know, it just so happens to be that I've been let down by a bunch of movies lately. So I just want anybody who just recently joined the show to know that it's not my normal thing to... uh, to uh, nitpick and find fault in movies, but hey, when it happens, it happens, you know? So with that said, uh, I want to remind you all, make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together. You could subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much all the big podcast apps. You could also rate and review us. Five stars would be awesome. And like I said already, you can uh, follow us on social media at PiecingPod. But today on the show, I've got returning co-host Ryan Darty with me to talk about Drew Goddard's Bad Times at the El Royale. Um, This is a movie about a rundown hotel right on the border of Nevada and California. And it is a story about a bunch of characters who converge on one fateful night and a whole bunch of bad stuff goes down. But uh, it sounds like a movie I would love. Um, But unfortunately, as you'll find out as you listen to this episode, um, it just didn't work for me, but I I don't want to get too far into that right now. Let's just jump into the conversation, and you'll hear what we have to say as we continue going into it. All right, so back on the show with us again is Ryan Darty. Ryan, how you doing? Hey, good. Ready to talk about this movie. Yeah. Did you have a good time at the El Royale, Ryan? <laughs> before before I saw this movie, the, my my only review I had seen at first was was Dave posting on Facebook going, "This movie's fucking terrible." <laughs> like, <laughs> like he wasn't that aggressive, but it was like very not encouraging walking into it. And the person I saw it with, I like gave them a rundown of like because we saw it at like ten thirty at night, and I kept hearing how this movie was like super long yeah. and dragged forever, and I was like. Dude, you really don't have to see this movie with me if you don't want. Like, but I, I, I had a pretty good time at the El Royale, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. It's funny as I've been like writing down my notes and stuff like that. I, I like it a little more, and I also like it less at the exact same time. And I, I don't yeah. know how to exactly, uh, you know, r- r- really bring that together and decide on really what I think. But we'll see. Maybe by the end of this conversation, I'll have more of a definitive. Um, <laughs> Once we kind of talk it out. I'm kind yeah. of in the same way, though, because a lot of that movie, a lot a lot of bad times is great on paper. 
So I think yeah. as you reflect on it, looking back, you remember like kind of how it was set up and you're like, oh, that's pretty good. And then you mm. kind of hit the bumps in its execution and then it just yeah. sours your entire mute mood. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if nothing else, uh, our conversation will probably be uh, a lot shorter than the movie was. So um, <laughs> <laughs> with that said, uh, why don't we jump into your first puzzle piece? Yeah, sure. So um, the first one was one that, uh, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. But uh, the TV show Lost, which I had completely forgotten that Drew Goddard was a writer for Lost. So that makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense because he wrote and directed this movie. I think going into this, I mostly thought of it as the movie by the Cabin in the Woods guy. Um, Sure. He wrote one other movie, which you and I will talk about later because we always have to talk about it. Um, But now is... Now is not the time for that. You'll have to keep listening, viewers. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so a lot of TV shows and movies do the like flashbacks to fill you in on the characters. But uh, Bad Times at the El Royale was very much set up in a way where you almost could have watched. It was almost like watching multiple episodes of a TV show in a row where it would deliberately set you up with a cliffhanger that kind of didn't make sense. And then go back and show you some information about a character's like youth or upbringing that would then make that information make sense. Right. Um, and specifically um, this kind of struck me as one of those movies that is only as good as long as there are questions because the answers to the questions are never going to be as good as the intrigue you got from those questions. And it was very, very much like, you know, watching Lost where um, they keep throwing questions at you and things that don't make sense. And you're like, oh, what's going on? And then they'll show a flashback that'll explain one or two things. But you're and that like gives you more context about the characters. But then you're like, oh, now I have this new information about the character. Let's see what they get into next. And then like, you know, the payoff isn't really worth it. And I think that's just kind of inherent to these types of movies like and TV shows, just the anticipation. It's kind of like, you know, um, seeing Jaws the shark on camera versus imagining Jaws the shark and stuff like that, right? Like these movies really kind of prey on your your mind and your intrigue and getting hype and stuff like that. Uh, And it it just felt very losty in the way it did that. So I was very pleasantly surprised when later I looked and it was like, oh yeah, right, he did write for that show because that was probably... Zero coincidence. Um, <laughs> yeah, and- no, you know, going going back to what you were just saying, and like this isn't like an actual puzzle piece that I was gonna bring up, sure. but just to kind of go along with what you were just saying with with, with uh, the backstory and all that kind of stuff, uh, I was just thinking about Orange is the New Black. Uh, okay, the way, I have not seen that. the way that okay, so like every episode would start with a little bit of somebody's backstory before getting okay. into what's happening now on the new episode. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really think about that before, but the way that you were just mentioning it with lost, um, it, it kind of does that kind of similar thing where, where, um, you know, you've got, you've got the mystery of what's going to, what's going to happen moving forward, but they're also being thrust back into finding more about the characters and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, where they, where they, they show you the, uh, they show you the character in the current situation. They show you an outcome where the character behaves in a way that it doesn't make sense based on what you know about the character. And then they show you information from the character's past that then makes that new information 
makes sense. And also it was just kind of losty in, you know, the terms that it was kind of stuck up its own ass with how many twists it <laughs> yeah. had and like how much it felt like it needed to keep having twists. Um, yeah, it's like, it's though, like, it might as well, Drew Goddard might as well show up on screen and be like, Hey, this is pretty fucking clever. Right guys. Right. Like, <laughs> you know. And it did honestly remind me a lot of, um, in the same kind of way with the like jump backwards and show you something, uh, like pulp fiction. And I know you, uh, uh -huh. you're a much bigger Quentin Tarantino fan than sure. me. Well, that's a very uh, polite way to put it. Um, yeah. <laughs> not a fan of him uh so and and so you know i'll definitely leave that for you to discuss but kind of in that same context the same way like specifically pulp fiction does that where you will go back and do another scene and then things you know make sense that happened earlier on because of the information you've now been given um, absolutely yeah uh, well, i, I mean that Oh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, so that's probably a good segue to uh, if you have any yeah. Tarantino puzzle pieces. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that is a perfect segue into my first puzzle piece, which is Quentin Tarantino films in general. Um, when I first walked into this movie, I very much expected it to be uh, in, a, in the way that Drew Goddard kind of... Uh, broke down the whole horror genre with uh, Cabin in the Woods. Okay. Uh, I figured this was going to be uh, basically like a an entire breakdown of Quentin Tarantino, and I don't know if that's really what it ended up being necessarily, um, sure. but there are definitely shades of, like you just said, Pulp Fiction with the... Uh, with the the disjointed st uh, storytelling going back and forth and all that, there's uh, Reservoir Dogs with all these bad people meeting in one place. Yeah. Uh, also, H Hateful Eight is that as well, and then Hateful Eight also has uh, lots of uh, bits and pieces of of showing who these people are as it's going on, uh, and then Kill Bill with uh, some badass chicks who you know, <laughs> and lots of violence and everything. Well, violence is of course a uh, a uh, common theme through all of Quentin Tarantino's yeah, movies. Yeah. But um, I mean, really, I think if I was to really dig down, we could find parallels to basically every Quentin Tarantino movie, but those were the, the four main ones that I was thinking of uh, when I wrote him down as an entire puzzle piece. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm not sure that... I think maybe I'd like the movie even more if it was more on the nose as like... Like, oh, yeah, this is, like, totally like a Quentin Tarantino movie. I think yeah. where it tries to differentiate itself is where it starts to actually come undone a little bit, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do I, – I like this kind of a movie, though. And so yeah. I, I, get, I definitely have to applaud Drew Goddard for doing this kind of a movie and for – you know, not a lot of people – try to take something this big on with all these yeah. characters and, and so much plot and, you know. It definitely seems like he probably pretty thoroughly executed exactly what he set out to make. Like this doesn't I would think so. Yeah, it do, yeah. it doesn't seem like that like that like any of the parts that are bad or that we didn't like about it are because like the studio interfered. It, it's yeah. probably all <laughs> deliberate decisions he made for the kind of movie he wanted to make. Yeah. And, and I mean, Tarantino can get away with it because I mean, even though you don't like him, um, <laughs> he's got a fucking genius brain that somehow yeah. pulls these things together um, for the rest of us anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, but but Drew Goddard, as much as I love a lot of what he has done, I just don't think that the thing that he put together is as uh, interesting 
sure. or good as he really set out to make it. But I do think you're right, though. This is a movie that really feels like studio. the studio didn't give him a fucking note. Like, yeah. they just said, make your movie, man, and uh, make it as crazy as you want to make it. Now, didn't, didn't Tarantino ha- have a movie that was like an anthology film set in a hotel or something like that? Yeah, well, Four Rooms um, was going to be one of my other puzzle pieces. We could jump into that one right now. Oh, okay, um, sure. Sorry, I wasn't sure if you were going to group that in with your Tarantino stuff or not. I, I don't really know much about that movie. Um, but yeah, having not that, seen it, I was like, is this pretty much what <laughs> Four Rooms is? Right, yeah. Well, Four Rooms is actually the one Tarantino movie that I've only seen once. And it's not okay. even really, I mean, it's not technically... He he did one of the vignettes. Okay, uh, so it is an anthology. It's four film. different directors. Okay, yeah. So, um, but yeah, and I haven't seen it since it very first came out, so it's not very fresh in my head. But sure. definitely, I I had it written down as a puzzle piece because yeah, we're we're talking about uh you know hotel and with the different rooms and the different people in it and how they all converge and you yeah. know the different stories and yeah. So I mean, absolutely, four rooms was something that I was thinking of as well. Um, and I, I figured that would kind of make its own little puzzle piece, but yeah, in in very much the same kind of ways though. Okay, sure, sure. That that makes sense then. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure uh, if he directed the whole movie or if he directed one of the chunks of it or whatever. I just kind of know Tim Roth was in a Quentin Tarantino movie in a hotel. And it's got four chunks. <laughs> and that's very much what I was thinking every time we had the title cards come up in this movie. Um, you know, where oh, I'm yeah, like, room sure. one, room two. I was like, oh, this is probably what four rooms is like. Uh, having never actually seen it, <laughs> I, I love I love the uh, the visual of you sitting in the in the theater, and you're like, ah, oh, this is probably what Four Rooms is like. Instead of just watching the movie, like <laughs> analyzing real quick, I, I got to talk about how annoyed those title cards made me in in the way that they were inconsistent. That like. Most of them followed a theme, right? Room one, room two, room five, whatever. Uh, Uh At the end, we had maintenance closet, which kind of fit into it. And I was even okay with um, when it said Washington, D.C., even though I felt like that probably didn't merit its own chunk. And it probably should have been, you know, merged into into like John Hamm's rooms chunk or something like that. Because I think it sure like really they just kind of gave it its own title card specifically for the sake of we needed to have a twist and a cliffhanger and a flashback, right? That information probably should have come immediately after John Hamm, like calls the FBI people or whatever. Um, But Uh they needed to cut back to something and then have a cliffhanger, which was, you know, the woman smashing Jeff Bridges on the head and they couldn't cut right to um, Dakota Johnson's character's room. So they kind of just needed something else. So they sort of just had to put a title card in there. But what really bugged me is when they did that same shit again for Chris Hemsworth's character and the card just said Billy Lee. And it bothered me so much that they were all locations and then one card was a dude's name, right? Like it wasn't like they, I would have been fine if every room was like when you go to John Hamm's rooms, like segment, instead of room two, it says like, Mr. Vacuum Salesman, and then, you know, when you get to the... Right, but they just kind of cut... And I'm sure that in Drew Goddard's mind, that's like a metaphor about how he doesn't... How Chris Hemsworth's character doesn't conform to society, and therefore all the other title cards are locations, but then there's 
Chris Hemsworth was not tied down into a location, but like it just yeah. fucking bothered me so much. Like such a dumb thing to get hung up on. But oh my god, I I could see that. I could totally see that. Like I did, I didn't get hung up on that, but I totally. Now that you're mentioning it, that is uh, that is rather annoying, and it. it <laughs> It kind of, it, it kind of lends to that character's like total like self-important like obnoxiousness. Oh yeah, know? I'm sh- I'm sure that he knew that when he did it because right like so many yeah, of them are yeah. the room, the room, the room, maintenance closet. Those are all parts of the hotel because those characters are all kind of intrinsically tied to the hotel, and Chris Hemsworth's character is not tied to the hotel. And then the Washington D.C. one is just fucking because they couldn't structure the story any better. And I think that was kind of the example of they needed to create a cliffhanger and then just jump somewhere else. So the place they jumped to <laughs> was, well, why don't we see who was on the other phone with John Hamm's character? Cause he's the only character who's done anything. So like it, it seemed like that, that almost existed just to justify some of the pacing of the film, which I feel like came sure. up a few times, right? Like people have complained about how long the movie is and how much it drags. And I feel like a few times it has to kind of artificially lengthen itself just to, because it needs somewhere to go after a twist and you can't go from twist to twist yeah. to twist, except like at a climax. So they just kind of have to jump somewhere else to have some time to breathe. <laughs> did, by the way, did, in your, in your theater, when, um when the girl, uh, I, I, don't remember her name the singer uh this is just a total aside real yeah. quick but when she when she hits uh jeff bridges over the head with the bottle did your whole theater go oh i was surprised like- <laughs> they didn't right like i i was waiting for people to cheer for that um yeah everybody I, I went surprised nuts in my theater. i was surprised by it i'm not gonna lie like and as soon as it happened I sort of was like, oh, there must have been a mirror behind the hotel that you behind the bar that you saw earlier. And while she was fiddling with the thing, she like Uh saw it. And then it was like, nope, she just knows not to trust dudes. And therefore, yeah. Also, as like a mostly atheist watching that movie, I had a very, you know, like when Quentin Tarantino does a really slow scene and it's hard to tell if it's important or not. Like, like, um, that's a good example. The um the don't forget the cream scene from Inglorious Bastards uh, or something like that. We're like I knew you were gonna use that one. Yeah, yeah, because I hate that scene so much. <laughs> um, where and like sometimes it's hard to tell if he's just breathing or if it's because something important is going on. The fact that she yeah. sang like five different church songs and he just kept going. Yeah, I kind of remember that one. Yeah, I kind of remember that one. I had a really hard time telling because I I don't really go to church. I mean, you probably have the same problem being Jewish. We're like. I don't know if those yeah. are real Christian songs or not. I thought maybe she was making some up to see if he was like, oh, yeah, we sing Jesus is a pretty rad dude as well. And she's like, we don't have a song called Jesus is a pretty rad dude. Like what? Uh, um, so I thought that's where that was going. See, I didn't even but it, but it, But it wasn't. It was just, oh, I know how to spot a liar. <laughs> like, maybe that actually did happen. Jeez, and yeah. Draw attention to it. But the entire time I was sitting there being like, I wish I went to church more to know if these are real songs or not. That's a really interesting uh, thing. I and I have to assume. I want to give the movie credit. I want to assume that one of those was fake, and and that's how she knew because that that would make that make so much more sense. But yeah, they never 
they never let on that that's what was happening there. Which in, which in way, theory is fine. Form. I think this movie had enough going on that was smart that if there was stuff that it left unsaid to add depth, that's awesome. Sure. But I think we discussed that, that like so much of this movie feels like there's more under the surface that we're just not picking up on. Like, yeah. like it has to be smarter. It has to like have more depth and we just didn't see, especially like with the location, like that is such an interesting location for a movie to take place in with such a weird history and so much like implications yeah. and symbolism, but it didn't seem for the most part, like any of it, it paid off. It. No. And, yeah. and, and maybe it did in the background and we just didn't notice, but like, like I know we were sort of earlier talking about, the payoff of the film, uh, like like b- before we recorded this, you and I were talking about like the payoff yeah. of the film and like luck versus destiny. And like, maybe that's what the hotel represented, but it just, I don't know, like, like with a, with a location that rich and that quirky and interesting, it has to have meant more than was explicitly tied in. Yeah. But I would love for this movie to just come back and blow my mind eventually. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. As of now, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not convinced yet. No. But uh, you know, I don't know. We'll see what. We'll see what happens. Um, but what would yeah, your next right. puzzle? So uh, for next one, the next one, um, kind of as a whole, um, I guess you, you sort of touched on this with Hateful Eight, but the 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 genre of movies which are essentially a group of bad people converge on a location and only a few of them walk out. Um, which has been done a million times. Uh, my my go to example uh, is the Smoke and Aces films. Okay, yeah. where like fifteen, where like fifteen assassins are all trying to kill the same target. Um, and I believe in in Smoke and Aces one, it is like a Las Vegas hotel or something like that. Um, and there's and all these characters and it, and it jumps around between the different teams and sometimes a dude will get shot and then. It, six chapters later it'll start following some other characters who are also assassins and then it turns out those characters are the ones who shot the dude from (laughs) six chapters earlier and stuff like that um and i guess the core difference is for, for a lot of these movies like smoke and aces um 90% 90% of the characters who converge on that location converge for the same reason mm-hmm. or for like slightly different interpretations of the same reason. Like in Smoke and Aces, there's FBI agents there because they want to um, like rescue the crime lord. And there's assassins there because they want to kill the crime lord. And there's like the crime lord's guys who are there because they want to protect the crime lord. Whereas <laughs> in... And I don't know, is Hateful Eight like that? Or are they all pretty much there for differing reasons in Hateful Eight? Or? Uh, yeah, no, they're all there for different reasons. Okay, they just happen to be at the same location? Yeah. Okay. Um, right, okay, so the, and then that's much more like what Bad Times at the Del Royale are. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I think the most you, you could say would be that Dakota Johnson's character and her sister were there for the same reason, which sort of by proxy is why Chris Hemsworth's character and all the other folks show up. Sure, but yeah. for the most part, like everyone's there with their own agenda. Um, and I, I guess this does kind of tie into the destiny versus luck thing where like half the characters were there for reasons that were like totally coincidental. Um, Dakota Johnson's character stopped there because they needed to pull over 
because you know she had her fucking sister tied up in her trunk and i guess you have to feed her at some point and (laughs) like the singer stopped there because it was just the nearest hotel yeah whereas like jeff bridge's reason to going to that hotel started 10 years earlier and john ham's reason to go to that hotel started like five years earlier so there was like a nice convergence of some characters there for a reason and some characters there for shitty luck and maybe that's what the half nevada half california was representative of uh but i don't i don't know um it seems possible i mean yeah I, like we like we were just saying though, it's like a lot of the things that are possible are just never really explained, and it's like hard to yeah. say. Yeah, and, like, and I'm going to touch that, on this a lot more for a later puzzle happening? piece of mine, where I'm going to talk about like expectations <laughs> versus reality of the film. Um, but they all kind of keep coming back to that of like it has to be smarter than it seems, right? Like, <laughs> it's just gotta. We're just in, well, I think know, we're before... just like in denial and our love of Cloverfield <laughs> has just blinded us. I think so too, 100%. <laughs> All right, um, so what before, do you got? Before, yeah, before oh, I sure. go to my next one, I just, I just thought it was interesting. The Smoke and Aces movies, they were like kind of popular and I, I'm surprised that there's not either uh, more of them or like like some direct to video spin-offs or stuff like I that. Think, I, I think it was direct to video by the second one. Like <laughs> I, I, there was two, maybe three. Well, I remember the first one in the theater and I'm looking it up I, right yes. now and no, there was only a second one. They never right, And I've seen the that. second I've, I've seen the second yeah. one like once and I think it was like direct to TV. Um might have been. Yeah, when I when I was a kid, I was too young to see Smoke and Aces in theater. Like I remember yeah. I saw it for the first time when I went to college um, and I just thought that had the coolest fucking commercial and stuff. Yeah, Cause yeah. it was like a bunch. It's like, <laughs> Oh man. Cause like everyone in that movie was pretty cool. Right. There was like, even yeah. like, like the least cool dude in it was Jeremy Piven as a magician, but like, you know, everyone <laughs> always loves Ryan Reynolds. And I think like maybe Ray Liotta was in it. And um, just like, and every team was kind of cool in their own way that would apply to different, like people or whatever sure um i don't remember if i actually loved it that much once it was like once i actually saw it oh you're right the sequel was direct to video you're totally right i just yeah i think that had like vinnie jones in it and stuff Uh um but i he was like i think he was like the fourth forgotten demolition brother or something (laughs) like that there was like the three demolition brothers in the first one and then like they all died and vinnie jones played like the equivalent of like shemp from the three stooges (laughs) like (laughs) like, oh yeah we forgot we had a fourth brother like i guess he's gonna kill people in this movie (laughs) (laughs) that is so ridiculous Well, uh, so my my next puzzle piece is uh, Smoke and Aces was in the 2000s. It's kind of like the late 90s version of Smoke and Aces. Uh, it was The Way of the Gun, uh, which is okay. the Ryan Phillippe thriller, uh, which was very Tarantino-inspired at the time. And, uh, I, you know, it's funny, like, we talked about this a little bit beforehand. I had mentioned I was going to talk about this movie. But really, yeah. in reality, I watched this movie so many times <laughs> but I don't really remember any of it except for the the impressions that my buddy Q does. Uh, Q, who is on on, on this show as well, um, but uh, co-host of Bird I, Road, I, yeah, plug co-host there. of Bird Road, my boss. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't really remember much of like the plot. I just remember it being like just a lot of violence, a lot of 
great characters that all like kind of converge on one place and there's a lot of violence from that point forward um and uh but it was it was definitely that kind of a thing and it, the the tone of it also uh very much reminded me of uh the way that uh, things unfold in bad times at the El Royale. Um, sure. And also, it was like, I guess Ryan Phillippe in some ways was kind of the Chris Hemsworth of his time, a little bit. <laughs> now, a, uh, uh, do you badass. remember if Way of the Gun did ha- kind of had like like a like a very tonally different third act than the first two, the way Bad Times at the El Royale? Because like Smoke and Aces, for the most part, was pretty pretty con- like it would get weird at times but it didn't necessarily have mm-hmm. a drastically different dynamic for the last third the way bad times did do you remember if way right. of the gun had that no or? i would say i would say not i would say but like this that is a very much what i would have expected out of drew goddard and he did deliver in that department and that things got weirder you know yeah. and, and more different as it as it went on yeah, okay, that's, yeah, and I feel like, like, you saw that, like, in Cabin in the Woods, where, like, mm. it, it, I don't know, like, and I felt like that was, in a lot of ways, the the weakest part of Cabin in the Woods was that last third, where it stopped being a satire of horror movies, and just started being, like, alright, they're running through a factory now, and also, the factory is filled with monsters killing, like, businessmen, or whatever, like, yeah. Kind of, like it, very tonally different from the first two thirds, so I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. Right, right. Well, you know, com- confession. Uh, as much as I, I love Cloverfield and all, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I didn't love Cabin in the Woods. I love the idea of the okay. Cabin in the Woods. Sure. I, I watched it and I was like, holy shit, this is great. But I'll probably never watch this again. But but I love that this is happening. I love that I love that this movie yeah. exists. This makes me so happy. You know, my my biggest problem with Cabin in the Woods, which took away from my enjoyment of it, was that I had been following it for a very long time. Oh, like it okay. was like in development hell for like five years or something like that. Like like I think like Joss Whedon kept trying to get it made. And um, did did Joss Whedon direct it or did? Drew Goddard directed. Drew Goddard directed Cabin in the Woods. Okay, he so he, he wrote it and directed yeah, it, and he was, co-wrote it with Joss Whedon. That was okay. his directorial debut, but he, I'm pretty sure. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like at one point it was actually a Joss Whedon-directed film. Mm. Like, like it, it just changed shape so many times. But then, yeah, yeah, when it came out, I enjoyed watching it. Um, but then I, I don't think I've seen it since. Like, I... You know, no, I've like double featured it with Tucker and Dale versus Evil a few times. <laughs> Man, if you want to talk about fucking movies that the first two thirds are a great satire of horror films and the last third just kind of turns into a shittier horror film. <laughs> uh, man, Tucker and you know, a lot of them are like most horror satires for the last third turn into straight up horror movies and it never works. Like the last third of Tucker and Dale versus Evil was the weakest. Um the last third of Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon was the weakest. Um, all those kinds of things. I don't know. I'm, I'm on a tangent now. <laughs> That's interesting, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what would, so you, what would your next puzzle piece be? Puzzle piece. What should I go with for this? All right. I'll, I'll go to the one I I'll go to the one that I um, hinted at earlier. So um, I'm going to kind of talk about two things which are sort of related, sort of not, which is um, 
the film Identity, which uh, if anyone forgets what that was, it was kind of an adaptation of And Then There Were None, which uh, the Agatha Christie novel, which is my other which is my other puzzle piece that I'm tying in with identity, which is Agatha Christie type stories, not necessarily. And then there were none mostly because I haven't actually read it. Um, But those types of films and um, you know, identity was a movie about like 11 people converging at a hotel where they all it's revealed over time that they're all mysteriously linked to each other in ways they wouldn't have expected. The hotel is not what it seems. And kind of one by one, they're all getting picked off by, um, you know, by a sinister dude. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Agatha Christie novels in general, just kind of that thriller mystery, like, Oh, only two people are walking out of here alive kind of vibe. Um, And I thought it was interesting because, that's what I like, like you talked about kind of expecting it to be like a Quentin Tarantino film. And I walked into bad times expecting it to be like an Agatha Christie type adaptation mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of twists and stuff. And, and I, I looked around online and a lot of people felt the same way as me. But the thing is, I don't, I don't know that that was fair of me to expect that and therefore to be disappointed that it wasn't that because the commercials didn't necessarily imply that or anything it was just you know the i I think we walked in with expectations because it was a drew goddard movie yes that we knew there was going to be twists um the uh, the move the commercials made it very clear that hidden identities and false identities are a very important component of it uh we expected it was going to be violent because of the fact that it was super stylized and it was called bad times of the el royale Mm. but you know, was it fair of me to expect this movie to be kind of a tense people getting picked off mysterious? Who's the killer? What's the real identity thing? I don't know that that was fair of me to expect that from that movie when I don't know that it actually explicitly tried to be that or even advertised. Like, it's not like people who were disappointed in the village because the village was advertised as like a, slasher horror and it was much more of like a psychological thriller right i think this was just straight up people the commercials were kind of vague enough that people just saw what they wanted to see in the commercial and everybody sort of assumed there's got to be more to this than what the commercial is showing which is true right it did have a lot more than what the commercial showed but everybody took it in a different direction the girl i saw it with she thought it was a movie where john ham runs the hotel and like is like peeping on victims and <laughs> then a murderer happens like you know i'd like to see that or movie. whatever and then, you know what that's actually another puzzle piece of mine coming up so don't worry a <laughs> uh, very similar type of movie nice. um so yeah and, and and you know you expected it to be a kind of quentin tarantino type movie and i think that was just because it was very over stylized and also you knew the kinds of things drew goddard tends to write he tends to write deconstructions of things um but it it was very interesting to me that like a lot of people got the same opinion i got got the same impression that i got and got the same impression that you got just from the commercials and from what you thought the movie needed to be um 
And I, I just thought that was very yeah. interesting that like, like the, it's, it's kind of like almost the expectations of like, you expect certain things when you see a movie's directed by M. Night Shyamalan or something like that. Yeah. And if it's not what you're expecting, right? Like I'm not going to say Lady in the Water was a good movie, but I am certainly going to say that I think people would have enjoyed it a lot more if they judged it for what it was trying to be rather than what they thought it was going to be. Sure. Um, and Lady yeah, in the Water... It was. I don't think Lady in the Water was misadvertised. I think it was advertised reasonably straightforwardly, like maybe a little more horror-ish than it should have been, but it was pretty well advertised as this is an adult directing a modern fairy tale. Right. Exactly. And people were disappointed that it was a movie about a modern fairy tale um, because they wanted it to be something else. And the imagery gave them enough room to run in their minds about, what is this going to be? And I think that kind of ties right back to the, the theory of like when these movies are based on questions and intrigue, as yeah, soon as yeah. the intrigue isn't there anymore, you know, right. It's, it's, it's a movie about a dude who was trying to get video footage of JFK fucking Marilyn Monroe. And also <laughs> there's a bank robber there. And also there's a girl on the run from a cultist. Like, <laughs> Right. Well, None of those are good payoffs, but why did I expect it had to be more than that? You know? Right. Why? Why exactly do you want more? And you know what? I, I think it's interesting you went to M. Night Shyamalan as your examples, because I think more so than the than the trailer or any of the expectations from the trailer, it's expectations of this kind of like auteur writer director. Um, yes, that's very you know, much one of the reasons why I picked M. Night. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's somebody that you you think you know what to expect and you want to be surprised and you want to be you you want I mean with Drew Goddard I mean I want my mind blown you know what I mean and yeah. like what why and does like, he have like, why does he, he have has... to fully blow your mind every time you know? right like if he just wants to fucking make a like make a straightforward movie right it's like when you see you know, um, like crazy directors who then every now and then are just like, all right, also, I'm just going to direct like a biopic about like a sports figure or something like right. that. Right. Like, yeah, it's, if that's the movie they want to make, it's not their fucking job to make the movie I want that I think they should be making. Yeah, uh, I have more qualms when there's false advertising, but I don't necessarily think that this was the case with bad times. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole movie just kind of got me thinking about how many of the things I was kind of uh, about were sort of my own fault for expecting them. <laughs> yeah. um, and that, that ties into the Agatha Christie and then just also in Identity was a movie similar to that set in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> you, ra- you wrapped up that puzzle piece quite well right there. <laughs> <laughs> go back to the original puzzle piece, which was Identity as opposed to my soapbox about a novel that I've never read. <laughs> <laughs> very for anyone who has not listened to a lot of episodes there's a recurring trend on this show that i tend to only compare movies to other movies that i've never actually seen <laughs> yeah that, that's why i love having you on it's always, it's always uh... <laughs> i think i think the four rooms was kind of like that where i was like in my head trying to figure out how bad times was similar to a movie that six years ago i read a wikipedia summary of. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <sighs> All right, I, I'm going to say that wraps up the identity in Agatha Christie one. What do you Perfect. Got? Okay, so my next puzzle piece is one I've brought up many times on this show before. Um, <laughs> and I, it's a very specific reason, though. Um, okay. And it's No Country for Old Men. And yes. the reason why is because 
one of the things uh, amongst a million reasons I love No Country for Old Men, but one of the the interesting things was the use of the hotel and the way that uh, they were hiding the money in the hotel, the way that uh, the hotel became such a uh, uh, such a place of dread and like I love the yeah. like the sound design inside the hotel, like the walking down the hallway and the light bulbs and all that stuff. And, yeah. and there's a lot of that kind of stuff here in in bad times at El Royale. It's actually some of my favorite stuff about the movie. Um, I wish there was more of it. I wish there was more focus on. Uh, you know the tricks and turns of the hotel and the yeah. the interesting ways and, and like the digging underneath the the carpet and all that stuff and like and then as well as the hidden passages and all that. There's just so much interesting things to get into yeah. within the hotel and everything they did was great. I just wish there was more of that because and it's yeah. not that there's a lot in No Country either. Um, but what's there there's is no awesome and it reminded me. Set of it. in one location. I, I, I it's been a long time since I've seen it. No, it's in a lot of different locations, but they okay. they they do uh, end up at the hotel. Uh, okay. A few times while looking for the money. Oh right, because so. it is a movie about a dude who like stashes stolen money or something, right? Like I yeah. mostly just remember it being uh, Javier Bardem hitting people with a cattle prod. You know, it's interesting, yeah. and maybe you're about <laughs> to say this, so I apologize if I'm cutting you off. Is when you said No Country for Old Men, my first instinct was, oh yeah, because he flips the coin to see if people live or die, and Chris Hemsworth uses a roulette table to see if people live or die. Oh, um, I, I hadn't it, thought of that, but that is a great parallel as well. That's another good. That's that's exactly that's why awesome. I thought you were citing that one was because Chris Hemsworth was like, "Look, man, I kind of don't really care. I just need to know what I need to know. So whoever dies, yeah. dies, and just tosses the coin <laughs> on." Which was very like Anton Shigurin or whatever his name is. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's no, interesting because that, I, I don't one. remember much about the scenery of No Country for Old Men, so I would I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, oh, you need to go back and watch it again. Watch it I'm again. not a big Coen Brothers guy. So good. I know you're not. Know you're not. <sighs> not the Everything you really like, I just hate you. Basically, I know. I noticed. I noticed this a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, oh, it makes, it makes it, me. Sad. David O. Russell, Coen Brothers, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> trying to think if there's anyone else who's like super. Do Do, do you hate big. Charlie Kaufman? I don't watch Charlie Kaufman, uh, so I've, I've actually never seen a Charlie Kaufman or a Michelle Gondry or a Spike Jones thing. I kind, I kind mind, of want you. I kind of want you not kind of to. The same person. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, that's fair. Well, Spike but, Jones and Michelle yeah. Gondry are definitely the same person. Sure, so you, sure, you can't yeah. convince me otherwise. Charlie Kaufman <laughs> is like their. They're like appendix who goes off and does his own thing. No, a lot of Charlie Kaufman's <laughs> been very high up on my list for a very long time, um, but like honestly. I'm really worried that like I'm not gonna like Eternal Sunshine or the Spotless Mind or something like oh. that. And like you'd break like, my heart. I really want to see it. Yeah, like like I, I would be <laughs> devastated if I didn't like that movie. Um or if I didn't like adaptation or if I didn't like Anomalisa. Those are like the three big ones I wanted to see. Yeah. Um yeah. but oh yeah. <sighs> we should I just, I, I just together, ruin everything. Uh, we should do a piecing it together, um, like mini series thing where where you finally catch these things and hate them all and I just get really upset. <laughs> this is this is kind of tangential and maybe maybe we'll even cut this part out. But recently, my friends and I were having a which classic eighties movies has Ryan not seen kind of thing because everyone found out I've never seen a Back to the Future movie. 
and oh I feel like that's that's like up there with like Star Wars in terms of like everybody has seen Back to the Future. Yeah, it's and I've it's not even like I've seen it and forgot it. I've literally never seen any of the Back to the Futures. And then we discussed this in Predator. I've never seen any of the I've never seen any of the Buddy Cop movies. Like I never saw Lethal Weapon. I never saw Forty Eight Hours. Uh, I saw Die Hard for the first time last year. Um, like just I. Look, man, it's and, and the th- I haven't even Wikipedia'd most of those either, which really shows you how out of my ballpark like that is. Like, usually, I like I've Wikipedia'd like obscure like Serbian vampire movies that were made in like 1985, <laughs> and yet like I don't really know what the plot of Lethal Weapon is. You've seen both chapters of Best Friends. Um, I've seen but- both chapters of Best Friends, <laughs> and I may see them another time. Oh. <laughs> All right. Do you have other oh, stuff man. for um, for No Country? No, we or... we could go on to your next puzzle piece for sure. Sure. Um, so these this one's gonna be kind of obvious. Um, so so it almost doesn't count because it's like it's a very different movie in every way except elevator pitch, uh, which is the movie Vacancy, which um, for anyone who hasn't seen it is a horror movie um, about some people who stay in a hotel. And they discover there's cameras everywhere in the hotel. And then they eventually discover that um, they uh, they make snuff films in that hotel. Mm. And then the rest of the movie is kind of them hiding in the hotel, trying to survive. But they never really know what parts of the hotel are under surveillance and what parts aren't. Um, so that very much reminded me of, especially in the beginning where John Hamm pulled all the bugs out. Um because the yeah, whole room yeah. was like mic'd and stuff and, and there was the video cameras. Uh, I think it ties into what you were saying about not fully taking advantage of the scenery was I was definitely expecting there to be at least one more sinister twist about the hotel itself. Sure. Um, and I think uh, vacancy kind of inspired me for that. Um, but tying back to another movie that I found when I was looking up things similar to this uh, is one of the Nicolas Cage movies that I haven't seen, which is looking glass, <laughs> which is a movie where he, uh, he, and unfortunately, this plot isn't on Wikipedia yet, so I'm only going off of reviews, which really disappoints me because all the reviews <laughs> complain about how obvious the twist is, and now I really want to know what the obvious twist is. Wait, um, th- wait before you before you say it though, this is a 2018 movie, am I correct? This came out after Mandy was in film festivals, but before Mandy came out. So I think so, February. So this is a 2018 movie that you have not seen. This is a 2018 that, Nicolas that, Cage film. That you're that citing. I'm, okay, let's go I'm for citing. it. I, I want to hear this. Only going off <laughs> of reviews. But so the premise of this movie, and, and uh, uh, interestingly enough with the comparison to Mandy, is that people have been regularly citing this as the most bored and down-tempo performance Nicolas Cage has given in his entire career, which really <laughs> intrigues me. Um, but apparently in this movie... He and his wife are trying to get a fresh start. So they buy um, an abandoned motel um, in like the middle of the Nevada desert. And he's kind of just walking around, checking the place out. And he discovers there is a series of tunnels that lead to rooms uh, that that leads to like a hallway with a, uh, um, a one way mirror. And he, um, becomes a voyeur and starts watching people who stay in the hotel. And then someone gets murdered in the hotel room. Um, and presumably he then tries to like solve the case or something. 
I, I, that mm. part is where the reviews drop off. Um, <laughs> but it very much seems like the kind of thing, like almost like the kind of movie that Bad Times would have been if the bellhop character wasn't there. Like then in that moment when like uh, John Hamm for the first time is like walking through when he steals the master key and he's like, oh, there are all these like windows here and shit. And then he looks through the window and he sees like, Oh, there's like a body in one of these rooms, or uh, uh, Dakota Johnson's character dragging, uh, dragging a, a hostage yeah. in. Uh, that very much seems like the kind of thing that uh, that Looking Glass was about. And I'm gonna have to watch that one of these days for sure. Um, okay. But that and Vacancy, I think, are kind of two sides of the same coin. Of in Looking Glass, you sort of know right away because the protagonist is the watcher and. Um, in vacancy, it's about the people in the hotel who are at the, who are staying at the hotel, who are kind of at the mercy of the hotel owners who have all the power and bad times of the El Royale is kind of both at the same time, but it's also after Mm. the hotel has lost its glory. So the sinister people who run the hotel aren't necessarily as relevant anymore. Um, and the people who are staying there at the hotel, there's really no good reason to be spying on them anymore and stuff like that. So like bad times of the old Royal kind of combined both of them and then set it 50 years after its glory days or something mm. like that. Right, right, right. Um, you know, going back to uh, something you were just saying during that one. Uh, sure. And, and I was actually going to save this puzzle piece uh, for last, but I'm going to bring it up now just because it ties in with what you're sure. just talking about. Um, so you were talking about the, uh, with, uh, vacancy about like the snuff films and all that. And it seems like the film that, uh, that in this movie, that is like a big surprise that, that it's there. And that it's the thing that John Hamm was trying to find or whatever. It, it was like a Kennedy, uh, doing something sexual in one of the rooms. Right. Yeah, I originally assumed that it was like JFK having his affair with Marilyn Monroe. Right. Um, but then like every review was like like would put in parentheses, it's clearly Robert Kennedy. Um, which led me to an interesting thing of I don't really know who the fuck Robert Kennedy is, to be honest. <laughs> the only Kennedy I know anything No 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 no, because I know we're gonna do this later with Charles Manson, because uh-huh. we already discussed it. So I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this now of the only Kennedy I really know is John F. Like uh-huh. I, I vaguely remember he had two brothers and I, I think one of them was like killed by mobsters or, or killed by a union leader or something. Uh, and I think one died in a car crash, which may have been the one who got shot. And I only know that from the national lampoon joke about Volkswagens <laughs> crashing um, and drowning. Um, this is so in my mind, it made perfect sense, especially when they were like, Oh, you know, like when she was like, Oh, why does it matter? He's dead. And he goes, well, like some people accomplish more in death than in life. Like that, that's such a JFK thing to me, right? Like we wouldn't have gotten to the fucking moon if JFK hadn't been shot. I'm pretty con- or like we wouldn't have beaten the Russians there. Like unless we landed while he was still alive, in which case I just made myself seem like a moron. Um, <laughs> but like, like I think a lot of the JFK's ideals that were then followed through after he died would not have necessarily happened if he survived or they would have happened 10 years later. So in my mind, it was obviously JFK, but apparently it wasn't. (laughs) Um, 
So I, I the, the reason I even brought it up is because I didn't know who the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> like, I didn't even okay. know it was a Kennedy. I didn't know any, like, and it really just went right over my head, whatever that was supposedly on those tapes. Like, I just thought it was some politician. Like, I didn't, like, yeah. really have, and, like, again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with expectations and, like, yeah. Like I don't know what I expected to be on that tape that would have been like good enough for me to be like an interesting ending. Yeah. Um but I it just it at the time as I was watching the movie I was like like this is nothing. Like <laughs> this means nothing to me what what's on that tape. It, it's like it literally it could have just been a blank tape and it would have been the exact same uh, impact on me. And like, and I think this kind of ties into what we were talking about about how clever the movie is. Uh-huh. Where I think if or how clever it thinks it is. Right. Was they went so out of their way to not say who was on the tape, which was fine in uh-huh. theory. In a vacuum that's fine. Especially if it's something that just like, oh, people who can put the pieces together and be like, oh, I guess, you know, because they keep showing Nixon on camera. I bet it's Kennedy, something like that. But every single time they talk about that tape, someone looks at the film and goes, is this who I think it is? And everyone goes, you're goddamn right it is. (laughs) And then someone goes, who is it? And then he's like, look at it yourself. Like they make such a, they rub it in your face that they're not telling you who it is. And it really got on my nerves. Like even the first time, the very first time when the kid who, I'm going to call him not Tom Holland because right. let's be honest, that's who he is. Uh, I later found out that apparently Tom Holland did pass on that role, which is fantastic. Cause I didn't know that. And I that's was just so calling weird. him not Tom Holland the entire time. That's so um, weird. But yeah, like he, he even makes a big deal in the very first shot. He's like, Oh, this is the room where politicians take their mistresses and then we record them. And I send the films for blackmail up to wherever. And I already thought that was kind of a weird plot point that like they didn't they didn't delve into more but they kind of didn't need to it was just sort of like it was almost like half explaining what was in the briefcase in pulp fiction right when like it almost didn't need like either fully explain it or don't explain it at all but don't like exactly you know um but he goes like oh but there was one politician who was so much nicer to me than anyone else had ever been he was just such a good guy well, who was it? Not Tom Holland. It was someone you would have known. Who? Not Tom Holland. Someone very important. Like, and then he looks at the tape and is immediately like to himself. Jeff Bridges is like, "Wow, not Tom Holland. You that this sure is a doozy of a tape with this guy on it." And then, and then when the singer goes on that monologue of like, "I don't care who's on that tape," because like. It's just a dude who says things to get what he wants. And like, I think that's again, like they were trying to get the metaphor of everyone is so obsessed about who is on this tape. And then we have a character who doesn't care at all. But, and like, I guess that's why everyone made such a big deal about it was so that the director could establish a contrast. Um, But again, it just feels like, I don't know how it could have been done better, but it shouldn't have been done that way. That's for sure. So in your mind, like you didn't, you didn't have any clue what it was. Not really. And then, uh, uh, someone said to me walking out, I forget who it was. Uh, like, you know, it was that Kennedy and that's when it entered my mind. 
that it was Kennedy. I, I assumed that was the only reason that they showed the Nixon footage yeah. was to establish that was Kennedy. But I guess I was wrong too, because if it was Robert Kennedy, again, I don't really know who he was, but I know yeah. he certainly wasn't president before Nixon. <laughs> like, just some just some dude with the last name Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> like like I knew the other Kennedys have to be important because I know that the Kennedys are American royalty. But in yeah. my mind, it was just like the Kennedys are American royalty the way that, like, I guess the Bushes are American royalty. But sure. I guess that's yeah, a bad yeah. example, too, because multiple <laughs> of the Bushes are famous. Um, what if it was and, a like, Bush successful. on the tape? That, that, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'd understand more. I don't know. So where, where were we? What uh, puzzle piece were we at here at this point? I, uh, you had started... I, I, you were, I don't remember what puzzle piece you actually went with, but it was what you used. Like it was what started oh, you talking about the film. I never actually said it. I was going to jump ahead. I was going to jump ahead and go into my classic Hollywood puzzle piece, which I had mentioned yeah, to you yeah. beforehand that I was going to be talking about, but yeah, the whole JFK thing is the reason why I was going to jump ahead because I thought it was a yeah. good jumping off point, but yeah, just classic Hollywood in general. There's so much with the music and with the style. And of course with that old Vegas thing, um, and then with 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 a Kennedy on the tape and and, you know, the Kennedy sex scandal. And um, I mean, there's just so much classic Hollywood in here. Uh, and then um, even, uh, you know, and kind of bringing it back to Tarantino, he's about to make this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood movie. Um, which apparently I was waiting to a... see how long it would take for us to get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it yeah, seems like I... Drew Goddard really rushed to get this out before that movie. <laughs> yeah, happened. right. He wa- he wanted to get his little uh, piece of it in with a uh, with a Manson type character, which uh, you know I I think both of us probably could have talked about a number of uh, cult leader characters in movies. Yeah, uh, but I mean we might as well just talk Manson. I mean. I, I'm, yeah. not ma- I'm not making him his own uh, uh, puzzle piece. I'll just make him a part of uh, classic Hollywood because he, I mean, sure. you know, regardless of who he is and what he is, uh, you know, he's certainly a part of that whole classic Hollywood uh, thing, you know? Yeah. And so, so we should get this out of the way. This is something that Dave was kind of making fun of me for earlier is that like, I really only know about who Charles Manson is from <laughs> the stereotypes and the jokes um of like i know he was a hippie dude and i know he had a cult and i know they murdered shannon tate i think that was her name uh-huh. and Wait, i when know you her? shannon tate was that her name okay sharon tate no you, you oh, yeah, okay yeah yeah um I, I don't know who she is i think maybe she was in a hitchcock movie or something um so i i really as far as i know like like charles manson to me is almost the same way that like a lot of people don't really know much about Hitler besides like he was a bad dude. And like, he did, you know what I'm saying? Like those kinds of figures where like the, the animosity of who they are, like almost Uh, outweighs who they actually were. So like, I don't, I don't even really know. Does Charles Manson have ties to Hollywood besides the fact that they murdered an actress? Well, I mean, did he, he was even also, murder he, the people? Like, was it his lackeys who murdered the people? It was, it like, was his, it was his lackeys, and uh, he was also a singer. So uh, it was like what? a very, uh, yeah, he was a uh, very, uh, 
like kind of like Beatles or Beach Boys type like singer. Um, he wasn't very popular okay. or anything, but yeah. The o- the only and he, and he hung and out around Hollywood. Hollywood so I, I you think know. you could totally again. This is something you could totally cut. But the the I think this goes to show how much I will talk about things I know nothing about. Is I used to have a comedy <laughs> routine about Charles Manson. Um, just <laughs> bear with me because you know how people always show. There's that one very famous black and white photo of Charles Manson with the crazy eyes. Uh huh. And people yeah. are always like. Like people like show that as an example of a sociopath. So I used to have a comedy routine that was more or less about how not everybody should follow their dream. And the example (laughs) I use is like some people just have really bad dreams. Like Charles Manson, like that is a dude who knew what he wanted to do and he did it. You look at those eyes. Those are, those are eyes of someone who is detached from reality because he's insane. Those are the eyes of someone who's detached from reality because he won. Like he accomplished everything he wanted to do. He's like, I want to be a cult leader. I want to be known forever. I want to murder like six actors or like an actress and her whole family. And then I want to go to jail and get written by a bunch of like, I want to have a bunch of crazy neo-Nazi women propose to me like every 45 minutes while I'm in jail until I turn 90 and die. And like, you look at him, he accomplished exactly what he set out to do. When they say that, like, you can be anything you want, like, to a child, like, not everyone should be whatever they want. And I think <laughs> he's, like, a pretty good example of that. Of, like, maybe sometimes your dreams are stupid. Like, maybe <laughs> yeah. you shouldn't Maybe you shouldn't follow through. Maybe you shouldn't pursue your passion in life. Because, like, Charles Manson didn't become a cult leader and kill people because it paid the bills. Like, he did it because that's what he wanted to do. And he was really good at it if you use the metric that he wanted to be judged by. Oh. But but yeah, I don't I don't know who the fuck the dude is. Like <laughs> So you know you know what I'm thinking right now is just hilarious, like for anybody yeah. listening at home. This is Ryan in 2018. So imagine that not you, Ryan, but like the Ryan of let's say 2068. Um, oh my god yeah will that ryan that person that is how old are you 20 uh, i'm 26 right now 26 26. well that 20 well the 26 year old in 2058 have any clue who these people are like you know what i mean like the mansons and the kennedys it's it's interesting to me because i i even think about that now and like i kind of made you know the hitler joke but like how how many people actually know that much about kim jong-il you know right yeah i bet i bet not many we just we we know he's bad we know his dad was bad we we know he's probably less bad than his dad but still causes trouble and shenanigans (laughs) like yeah and but like certain people their actions you know dominate everything else about them like and i you know, I'm I'm trying to think who like who will be the equivalents to like, and I think in general also just like like I don't really know much about killers in general. It's not something that interests me. Like I don't sure I don't know yeah, anything yeah. about the Unabomber besides the fact that I think like when he was in the army they gave him a bunch of LSD and that's what turned him into the Unabomber. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true. That might just be an urban legend. Um, <laughs> I know there I was a dude who was once called like the B2K killer or the the BKT. Killer. I don't know, but he was a big deal, and I didn't know about that. Like, 
Like I, I <laughs> like I'm not gonna just like I'm gonna get. I certainly don't know shit about the Zodiac Killer. Like besides that, he like tried to run for president three years ago, and is now like the governor of New <laughs> Texas or wherever. Like, but I don't know. Are, are Ted Cruz Zodiac Killer jokes still relevant? I guess they're back to being relevant again because of I, all I, the old work stuff. I'm always down for Ted Cruz Zodiac Killer jokes. That's <laughs> never never gets old for me. But, um, but yeah, so Charles Manson yeah. in general, like, I kind of had the same reaction to him. Like, we uh, with the Mandy film, where, like, those guys were, like, evil hippies. And I guess that's probably yeah. one of the reasons, like, Charles Manson got so much more attention is because, you know, hippies are stereotypically all about, like, peace and love, man. And, like, I don't know. Did, did, did Charles Manson, did he try to claim that killing those people was, like part of peace and love and stuff or was he not actually a hippie he just gets associated with with no he definitely was i forget you know what in the right on the spot right now i don't remember why he wanted them to kill kill uh her and and the family and all that um but yeah it was a very peace and love like thing like his whole his whole thing uh i don't i don't know why he ended up wanting them to die I, I i'm not quite sure oh, we're just gonna like turn this podcast into like cereal or something <laughs> like i have piecing I have it together presents making a murderer <laughs> where you this just go so far it's off course kind of like drunk history where like you half remember things about killers and then you teach them to me who knows nothing about the killer that that is exactly what this could be like <laughs> Like, like you give me your information on the Zodiac Killer based on, like, the David Fincher film, but, like, knowing none of reality, and I just know (laughs) none of it because I haven't even seen the David Fincher film, so you're a step ahead of me. Oh, another great movie you haven't seen. No, it's one of the few David Fincher films I haven't seen, which is weird because he's one of my favorites. It's his best movie. It's his best I've heard movie. it's amazing, and, and yeah. I love David Fincher. He's he's like one of my favorite directors, so I, oh, I have no man. doubt in my mind that I would love it. I just haven't seen oh. it. Watch it. Um, so what's your next puzzle piece? <laughs> um, I guess, well, well, let's piggyback off of the, the Manson thing where um, there's, there's like lots of movies about people trying to get their family members out of a cult or something. But then mm. when I had to think of it, I couldn't think of a, a, an actual example. I know that's a plot point in lots of movies of like my family member is like in too deep with this cult. I got to get them out kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, like a recurring theme with Dakota Johnson's character of like, she joins the cult temporarily. She realizes it sucks. She breaks her. That was kind of weird to me. They, they didn't show them escaping, which I thought was an interesting and good decision. Um, I think most other directors would have shown a shot of Dakota Johnson, like waking her sister up in the middle of the night. And saying, like, we gotta get out of here. And then her sister saying, no, stop, stop. And then her, like, chloroforming her sister. So that was very interesting. Right. That was one of the things they left unsaid. Um, so, I don't know. Do you, can, can you think of a good movie? That, that's an example of, like, we gotta break our sister out of a cult or something? You know, um... That's a really good question because yeah, I I was thinking about that myself and I'm I'm kind of drawing a blank. There's on, there's a found footage movie good example. that I I don't remember what it's called 
where like a group of people are doing like a documentary about a cult maker. And I think it's like a, like a husband and wife duo or something, but even if it's not like a few of the people making the documentary start buying into the cult leaders stuff. And then there starts being a lot Mm -hmm. of ambiguity. Um, And sometimes I really like that about cult type movies is whenever someone's like, we got to escape and everyone else goes, yeah, we got to escape. You know, at least half of them don't actually want to escape and are like immediately going to ring the alarm the first chance they get. And it's always a game of like who actually drank right. the Kool-Aid who did. Right. Um, and like there was, there was none of that ambiguity in this movie whatsoever, which was a shame. <laughs> yeah. Um, and wh- while we're yeah, on it's because there's so much else to balance. Yeah. Like, yeah. While, while we're on it, uh, I'll bring up another, another trope. Um, that again we both discussed this and said it was absolutely a thing we've seen in movies before but we couldn't think of a great example which is the i free the hostage and it turns out the hostage was the bad guy trope um and honestly the the best example i could think of is in demonic possession movies where there's always someone who has like figured out that the little girl is actually Satan and he's about to go and kill Satan. And then the cop comes in and the cop like shoots the main character three times in the shoulder and then runs up to the little girl and is like, it's okay, little girl, you're going to be fine. And then the little girl like eats the cop or something. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know it's been done in non supernatural films before. And I know I've seen it oh, like, at absolutely. least a half dozen times. And there are other examples, um, you know, in a lot of heist movies, that's a very common, common thing. Like in the dark Knight, they did that where all the, um, all the bad guys pretend to be hostages and they dress all the actual hostages up like criminals. Um, but I couldn't think of a good example of more or less a singular person and the going like, oh, it's okay, you're free now. And then immediately that person fucks them over. Um, yeah, yeah. And it is. It's such a trope. Like, it really is. And it's so funny that we're both drawing blanks on on these two tropes, actually. Because, yeah, that's uh, kind of why I grouped they, them together. They, they, re- this is just they really the, are. It's going to be the bucket of tropes. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it. That, like, that works, you know? That absolutely works. <laughs> Things um, we should as, as a puzzle piece. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. you know, anybody 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 listening at home, uh, you know, if you think of movies that fit those tropes, let us know. Yeah, join the uh we'll join the, the piecing it together a movie discussion Facebook group. Uh we have pretty regular right. discussions. I, I feel like uh Dave and I tend to take charge of like twice a week we'll post like open discussion questions and stuff like that. Um sometimes people comment with opinions on the episodes, um, or like, hey, if you guys are gonna do this movie be sure to talk about this. So like, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. join that Facebook group and let us know. Um, and like, make us feel really stupid. Cause I'm God, there's gotta be, <laughs> I can only think of movies with evil little children where that happens. But like, or like a lot of It'd movies be funny movies, if that's not even a thing. <laughs> it's never been done. Before. Like, and like a lot of movies will begin that way too, where like it starts where someone gets rescued. And then it turns out that the someone yeah. that got rescued is actually evil or something. But just gonna bug me. All right, just you do a pod. You do a puzzle piece now. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. salty. Yeah, absolutely. I I have I have one last puzzle okay. piece. Um, and this is this is one uh, that I immediately thought of, and that is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay, which is an- another movie where uh. Uh, you know, the hotel is a character. You yes, know? I, I kind of um, thought that too, despite having never seen Grand Budapest Hotel. 
I've only seen one Wes Anderson film, and I don't want to watch any more because, again, I think I won't like that. Oh, God. His, no, honestly, well, uh, everything I've seen about Grand Budapest makes me think I would. I'd be a lot more likely to like it than pretty much anything else. So, yeah, it, it's a really good movie. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there's so much, uh, you know, so much quirky history to the hotel yeah. and, and, uh, a, a lot of like the bellman, you know, explaining it, which is something that, uh, what's his name? Ray Fines does mm-hmm. in, uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And he is freaking phenomenal, phenomenal in that movie. Um, I do, and I've mentioned this throughout this episode before, I do wish they would have gone even further into it, though, in this one, Uh, whereas there's a lot to discover about the Grand Budapest Hotel, there's seemingly a lot to discover about the El Royale, and they just don't really quite go into it as much because there's so much time spent on the characters and the backstories and all this stuff. I do wish there was more about the hotel itself, but still, I've I've felt a lot of... uh, uh, similar feel yeah and and that whole exploring the hotel i i totally got that vibe even just from the commercials i've seen for grand budapest hotel yeah um and i think on that note also um we 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 were talking about this movie beforehand because i mix up drew goddard and drew pierce a lot um this year that movie hotel artemis came out have you seen that I didn't. I wanted to. Okay, cool. I haven't either, so this will be perfect. Um, Perfect. But very much that movie (laughs) makes a big deal about, like, this is the hotel. Um, These are the quirks of the hotel. These are the rules of the hotel. Um, I haven't seen the John Wick movies, but apparently there's there's a hotel that serves a very similar purpose (laughs) in those movies. No, no, no. I I know it's bad that I haven't seen John Wick. But... um, And, and, like, I love Keanu Reeves, too. So it's, like, disgusting that I haven't seen John Wick. Um, What's happening here? Okay. I, 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 I don't know. I'm a big fan of those kinds of movies where, um, I guess, particularly hotels um, are really good examples of it. Because a hotel kind of represents a place where people come together. And yeah. the the end result and ambiance of the hotel is kind of the collection of the people who have stayed at that hotel, if that makes sense. And isn't sure. like too yeah, like yeah. pretentious to say. Um, but I think that's no, why no, it makes sense. Hotels make great, great characters in movies. Like if you're going to make a movie where the set is a character, hotels are perfect for that because there's, there's so much that can be going on in a hotel and different parts of a hotel might be at like different levels of renovation. So you can have like the desolate, you know, beautiful past and also like the shining new future and stuff like that. And I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, El Royale was very upfront about that of just like, here's the slot machines that we don't use anymore, which yeah, the gambling yeah, in yeah. general, like I, I, the gambling has to have been significant for a reason beyond Chris Hemsworth uses it to decide who to kill at the end of the movie. Like, like it's kind of a metaphor for like lost glory probably, but, and like maybe also that like Nevada isn't all it's cracked. Cause, cause what do they, what does he say in the beginning? I, I keep thinking about not Tom Holland's speech in the beginning. And I'm convinced yeah, yeah. that it has to be a metaphor for the entire movie which is weird because it sort of doesn't jive with what I would think the metaphor would be because he says, I, 
warmth and happiness in California and hope and opportunity in Nevada. I think, I think that's what it is. Um, Sounds about but right. I very distinctly remember that like the opportunity one was Nevada, which was weird because I would associate California with that. I would associate California more with warmth and happiness, but I would still associate California with opportunity much more than Nevada because Nevada, I tend to think of as like adventure and luck and stuff like that. Um, sure. And I'm sure yeah, yeah. that Drew Goddard chose those four words very, very carefully. And I think that's the cipher right. to cracking the entire metaphor. And I am just not smart enough to figure it out. And I need to wait for like, I haven't like read the Reddit threads for this movie or anything like that, but like, I'm sure someone has written an article like proving that Drew Goddard is a genius and I'm a fucking schlub for not figuring it out. Yeah, we, we will definitely have to read these articles. And, you know, uh, if if we if we have like some big moment of clarity with this movie, maybe we'll do like a follow up second episode where we were yeah, or like a mini, a mini yeah, episode where or we something. discuss how wrong we were and where uh, Ryan has seen all the movies that we talked about. Um, <laughs> did you have any other, uh, I, w- I would be down for like, a, I'd be, I would definitely be down for like a gauntlet of it's half that thing that you and Q do where you like force each other to experience things that the other really loves that, you know, they'll right. hate, and half piecing it together. <laughs> we could just do like live streaming me watching me watching uh Cohen brothers movies and like since you already know everything that happens in them and i'll just be like oh this is kind of like this movie or whatever <laughs> like real time but uh did you uh have any other um, pieces you know i was trying to think of some good examples of like faded glory vegas and honestly i i, I think this is more you know like i I don't necessarily have a lot of nostalgia towards like the rat pack and any of that culture of like swing in Vegas. Um, but it did kind of like the, the one example I do know is the video game fallout new Vegas, Mm. which is uh, the fallout games all take place in like a post-apocalyptic universe. And more specifically it's, it's all, I think the apocalypse doesn't happen until the eighties, but it's in a world where like technology kind of stopped at the sixties. Right. Right. Um, and so it's all very much like what people thought things were going to be in sixties sci-fi. So it's very pulp, um, like the, the actual terminology pulp fiction It's very flash Gordon and very like old school laser guns and robots and that look like, you know, old school doctor who robots and stuff. Uh, but fallout new Vegas specifically, kind of goes counter to that because like Las Vegas is one or like an outskirt of Las Vegas is like one of the few places to do pretty well when it survived the apocalypse. Um, and in, in the game you're wandering around Nevada where it's all pretty much a, a barren wasteland and you can actually find like real places, you know, like prim and stuff like that. Right. Um, but then you get to new Vegas and there's only like, and people keep talking about like the glory of new Vegas and you get there and it's only like three casinos and like two, two streets worth of buildings, which in fallout terms is a fucking huge city, right? Cause everything else got bombed to shit. Right. But then you, you walk through these parts in these like three or maybe there's four casinos and each of them kind of is designed to represent a single aspect of um, 
old school Las Vegas culture. Like there's one that's very much the mobsters and the Italians and the pinstripe suits. And there's one that's very much kind of like the, the flapper girl type of stuff, but a little more like prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one that's all about the, just like, Hey, we're here to gamble. Let's focus on that. Um, but it's all very much in the vein of Vegas used to be amazing like but now its glory has kind of faded um so that's that's kind of what i thought by the especially during john ham's you know opening of like oh people used to stay here and here but then they don't tell you that they lost the gambling license so now it's all like dust covered slot machines and so on and so forth um so i bet there's a million movies that kind of catch that vibe and like you mentioned classic hollywood and stuff like that um but but fallout new vegas to me was really something i was thinking of um almost any time and especially like very much the a lot of vegas is there's neon everywhere right right but bad times at the el royale was there's just neon at the el royale and it's pretty abandoned everywhere outside of it and this hotel kind of is that right right bastion of hope type stuff um that's cool the other thing i don't did you get like hardcore sin city vibes throughout the entire movie i can't place why i did but i definitely that's good yeah i you know what i didn't uh i didn't think of that but like immediately as soon as you mention it yeah i i it did have kind of that vibe it's that stylized like feel and everything um and it did feel like the i would have believed it if this had been a graphic novel if you told me this was a graphic novel yes. first before it was turned into a movie, uh, yeah, I definitely would have believed you because it had that kind of a feel, that kind of uh, yeah, you know, big I, characters and like yeah, 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 and it definitely. I think some of the shots. I, I think honestly, that's the most where I got the Sin City vibes. Was like, you know the the gorgeous shots of like um, Chris Hemsworth showing up for the first time and like. Right tiptoe walking on the line um which oh yeah also and that's another thing right like his whole thing was pick a side this side or this side and the hotel must have been his fucking wet dream right because it was literally a hotel (laughs) divided down the middle but i never felt that that setting even though that setting was literally representative of what his character was talking about and his character's ethos of don't choose a side because sides are artificial it still never felt like they actually synergized to me uh, just another example of the set not matching up. Yeah. But like, yeah, shots like that or like the shot when she's, you know, running the, the shot that they used in the commercials where she's leaving the hotel and you can see the neon sign and it's it's raining and it, it's like doing the slow pullback like those those felt very sensitive to me. Not enough to like use a puzzle piece, but um, the whole movie I was getting and like Sin City is one of my favorite films. Um, but like, yeah, yeah just had to mention that and i was curious if you picked up on those vibes as well i i think it's worth putting as a puzzle piece because i think it does uh i I think there is enough of a uh enough of a parallel there especially like like what you were just saying but then also what i was just saying i think there's plenty plenty to go into that sure I think there's enough to, to list it as one. Well, I was going to say, that's a Robert um, Rodriguez movie, which is almost a Quentin Tarantino movie. So there you go. That's, that, there you that, go. Well, I think he uh, directed he one did. of the uh, vignettes in Four Rooms, too, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, and, and Quentin Tarantino directed one of the scenes in Sin City. Um, just yes, the, the, right. the scene where Benicio Del Toro's corpse is talking to Clive Owen. 
Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Quentin Tarantino like was on set and directed <laughs> that awesome. one scene just for fun. Um, which in retrospect explains why I thought that scene felt very weird compared to the rest of the movie. <laughs> I mean, better than all of Sin City so, 2, uh, still. Um, oh, yeah, I know. Sin City 2 is a oh, big yeah. disappointment, but that's a... That's an yeah, oh, yeah. So I, I feel like we're going to have a lot to talk about in our wrap-up here, oh, so yes. I should probably do the finished puzzle, and then we'll, we'll move yeah. on to that. Uh, so the finished puzzle, um, everything that we talked about just now is Lost, uh, Quentin Tarantino films like Reservoir Dogs, Hateful Eight, Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, uh, also Four Rooms, uh, Smoke and Aces, Identity, Agatha Christie novels, Classic Hollywood and Manson, No Country for Old Men, Vacancy, Looking Glass, Grand Budapest Hotel, movies where someone has to get a family member out of a cult, <laughs> that's a trope, as well as where they have to, or where, where they free the hostage, and it turns out the hostage was the bad guy. That's another trope. Both of those we're looking for examples of. Neither of us could think of any, but we know that they are out there. Um, then also we mentioned Hotel Artemis, Fallout New Vegas, and Sin City. So that is our finished puzzle. And uh, yeah, just to wrap this thing up, um, you know, wh- wh- I have a couple things I want sure. to talk about. I'm sure you probably do too. Uh, the first thing, and this is the most important thing to me, is, um, and I think when it comes down to it, it's the reason why after this long conversation, I'm still falling on the side of not really liking sure. this movie. Um, and it is because you've got all these characters, and they should be really interesting characters, but I can't really say other than John Hamm that I really like... I don't really find any of them very memorable or like interesting beyond what happens on the screen. Like I don't really, I, don't, I still am not connected with any of them in any real no, way. No, I was on board um, with Jeff Bridges and that's about it. Yeah. Jeff Bridges to a degree. Like certainly um, not, not yeah, Tom not, Holland. Certainly others. not Chris Emsworth. Certainly not Dakota Johnson. Yeah. Her sister, maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, no. Yeah, and I think that I think that's a big problem with the movie. Big problem with the movie is the characters just not being people worth investing in. Um, and you know, it's funny for a movie that that takes away so much time from the hotel to put into these backstories that we would end up landing in this place of of not caring about the characters after all that. Um, and I, it's and, weird. Uh, yeah. You know? huh. It's weird. And I, I do think a huge part of that is because what I was talking about earlier, where large chunks of this movie almost seem like they had to kind of work backwards sure. from, from a thing they wanted to accomplish. And, um, you know, I, I, I honestly think that I wasn't wrong when I said it kind of felt like watching four episodes of a TV show aired back to back to back mm. or something like that, where sometimes they just kind of had to contrive things to present. Like, they didn't present... You look at a movie like Memento, and the the way that that information is presented actively synergizes with the story. Um... And Memento is also pretty good about like almost every flat, almost every segment in Memento does end in a cliffhanger or a twist. I would almost actually retroactively cite Memento as a 
as a um, a puzzle piece for that, just because I think very, very few other movies (laughs) consistently um, have twist, cliffhanger, twist, cliffhanger, the way Memento and uh, Bad Times do. Sure. Um, But it seems like with Bad Times, they just kind of knew what reveals they wanted. And then they worked backwards from there. And, and, you know, I I honestly stand by what I said about, like, the... um, the uh the washington dc scene kind of just being added in because they needed something to do after the twist yeah. and stuff like that yeah yeah absolutely um, you know i feel like this this movie, this movie so- and you know i'm a i'm much more of a movie guy than a tv guy but i feel like this movie might have been better as a tv series oh yeah like like a like a limited run six hour show yeah. or something like i'm i'm not gonna lie i i actually like I only touched my soda twice when I watched that movie. I act, I didn't, I didn't think it dragged too much. Um, and I certainly didn't think it felt like two and a half hours. It didn't keep me at the edge of my seat and keep me going. And I had a lot of flaws about it, but I would have been perfectly content to spend more time in that world to get to learn more about it. Um, sure. So like, I think a lot of people, if it's like, Oh, do a mini series, make it six hour long episodes. They'd be like, Oh my God, twice as much of that. I would be totally down for that. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you get more of the hotel and I mean, I don't know more of the hotels what I want, you know? Yeah. But I um, those expectations I will admit again. though, you know, like I, the twists weren't revolutionary, but mm-hmm. I was genuinely intrigued every time new information was revealed. Um, I spent a huge part of the movie unsure if jeff bridges was actually faking his dementia until that flashback or whatever um like even after he was like oh no no no, that part's true or whatever i was like is is it actually true though um and stuff like that i oh i was telling you with this is the number one thing that i'm glad didn't happen in this movie and i was positive it was gonna happen is you know end of the movie uh, the singer and Jeff Bridges, only two people alive. They've got the money. They're leaving. And at this point, they've already established the singer as a bit of a no bullshit, especially from men type of character who is very representative of being scrappy and clawing your way up. Right. And earlier on, they had that scene where they showed her getting chewed out by her like music producer or whatever. Um I was positive that they were going to force in one last twist and on the way out um, of the movie, like on the way out of the hotel or when they get in the car, she was going to shoot Jeff Bridges and they were going to do one final flashback and they were going to reveal that she was not actually going to this place in Reno to sing. It was that she had killed her music producer and was on the run. And I was and, and then she was going to take this money to start a new life. I was positive that was how it was going to end. And I think that has to do with the expectations again of, cause this was a movie that was kind of up in its own ass about yeah. twists. And it certainly seemed like there hadn't been a twist in a while. And that seemed like one they were kind of laying the breadcrumbs for. And I think a lot of movies end that way with those kinds of twists. So I was, I was fully convinced that that's how it was going to end and I was ready to hate it. And then luckily it didn't end that way. It just had kind of a very mild, vaguely feel good ending um, of her singing. Uh, Side note, I didn't realize that can't hurry love was a Supreme (laughs) song. I genuinely thought that was a Phil Collins song. So, like, when she started singing that, 
I was like, how old is <laughs> Phil Collins? Like, she, like, cause I, and, and like, and I couldn't remember if it was a Phil Collins song or a Genesis song. And I was like, I definitely thought Genesis were like an eighties band, but like, and then I remembered that I was like, oh, I'm not positive when this movie is. Cause I couldn't a hundred percent remember when Nixon, like what actual years Nixon was president. But in my head, I was like, like really trying to figure this yeah, out. This is like a real, <laughs> like why Ryan is piecing thing? it together? Like literally. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, I, I, I asked that later. I was like, so is that a cover? And the person I saw it with had never heard the Phil Collins version. Um, so they they were just like, no, it's a Supreme song. And I was like, I definitely feel like Genesis has a very famous cover of that song. And they were like, no, nah, I don't think so. And then I looked it up and it like the, the Phil Collins cover was like massively famous. So I don't feel bad for not hey, knowing. You should never feel bad for not knowing. Um, that's, that's all I have to say. <laughs> hey, what did you think of the sound editing and the sound design in the movie? Because I fucking hated it. Yeah. So let's let's get that out of the way and give you a leading question. Like the whole scene, Nick Offerman, that opening scene, mostly silence, and then like that one song. As soon as it happened, I was like, I'm gonna hate the sound yeah. design for this movie. Like a hundred percent. And the entire movie, like like I liked the scene where she was singing and he was hitting things. But just none of it fucking the the whole uh, ex machina thing where chris hemsworth was dancing to like the deep purple song like i didn't give a shit about that the whole time when she's singing church songs i didn't give a shit about that the fact that the movie didn't have very much of an ambient score uh or maybe it was just so subtle i didn't notice it but for the most part i thought there was almost no score i hated all of that so, so now that I've presented the question in an unbiased like, way, I feel like David, exactly, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like exactly what you're describing is Quentin Tarantino gone wrong. I do have the same complaint about Tarantino movies a lot of times. So, Yeah, and I, I could see that. Like, I could see if you don't like it, you probably don't like Tarantino's use of music as well. But at the same time, I think Tarantino does it right. And whereas this, it just kind of comes across as like... Uh, I don't know, a little obnoxious almost, yeah. which I guess would probably be the same way someone might describe Tarantino's <laughs> use of music. But uh, to me, it's like perfect in every way. So. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I honestly, um, I, I had fun with the movie. You know, it was a, I mean, a, a good cast, like in like everything mm-hmm. about this movie on paper is fantastic, I think. Yeah, I was and looking like, so much forward to it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, I wonder if that was one of the reasons that Drew Goddard got away with making this movie the way he did and why it didn't look like there was much interference was because if a dude was pitching this movie to you, at no point would you say, oh, that's not a great idea, right? Like, right, a bunch right, of strangers definitely. come into a hotel. It's super bloody. Only one or two of them leaves. Also, the hotel is really mysterious. You'd be like, oh, okay, that sounds awesome. Also, John Hamm is in it, and he's actually secretly a, a secret agent. Oh, that's fucking awesome. Oh, and he finds a, a – there's there are people in the hotel are spying on people, and we get a little Manchurian candidate with, like – cold war politics or whatever um and like political blackmail but we're gonna leave it real subtle just for the fucking nerds to enjoy and you'd be like oh that sounds great you're like and chris hemsworth is gonna be shirtless and dancing you'd be like all right sign me the fuck up and you'd be like and Sold. you know guardians of the galaxy did all that bullshit with like 80s pop so we're gonna do the same thing but with like <laughs> it's not 
it's not quite Motown, but like whatever, whatever that the Supremes type genre is, um, right? Like everything on paper about that movie seems amazing. And you're like, we're going to make it super stylized and it's going to be all neon and pretty. And we're going to like have gorgeous cinematography. Like there's no reason you wouldn't hear all that. And like, like you would hear all that and you would be like, Oh, that, that's, that's gonna be a fantastic film. Like there's, there's Absolutely. nothing that could go wrong with that movie. And very few things were a hundred percent wrong. It just so much of the movie to me felt like a string of B pluses in a movie that could only be an A or a C. And the fact that it wasn't an A automatically made it a C almost. And I guess that kind of ties back to the unfair expectations <laughs> for things. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like So like, it's kind of our fault. No, but no, but just it's 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 also it's also Jew Goddard's Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it's it's like when you have those days when nothing really bad happens to you, but it's just filled with like minor annoyances. And at the end of the day you're like, yeah, yeah. that was the worst day I've had all month. And it was like, well, you know, I did break my leg two weeks ago. You'd think that would be worse, but it's, but it's not for some reason, because like, just like the summation of all these little things that kind of ruin things. Oh, like why wasn't this movie better? And, and I don't think I'm going to settle on if it, I think I'm kind of like with you, right? Like it, it didn't nail the landing, but it's a weird movie in that. Like yeah. the more you think about it, the more is good. And the more that's bad. But so, uh, you know, to, to wrap it up, there is one thing that we yeah. haven't gotten to yet. And it's, it's an important, okay. it's an important point. <laughs> um, as we know, everything's Cloverfield. Everything is a Cloverfield. Yes. No, every, everything's Cloverfield. But, um, <laughs> what, 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 this being from the original writer of Drew Goddard, was this Cloverfield? Man, this was was this movie so yeah for anyone who is not aware at this point david and i have an unhealthy obsession with the cloverfield <laughs> films and, and and we are we are of the of the opinion that every film is is actually part of the cloverfield cinematic universe that's right um is this one though no no i'm gonna say this is decidedly uncloverfield ish because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't swing for the fences in an interesting way um which i think is part of Cloverfield, like Drew Goddard has kind of built a career as being a dude who makes deconstructions of things, right? Right. Cloverfield right. was very much Godzilla. If you look at the old school Godzilla, back when Godzilla was very much a metaphor for like post atomic bomb Japan. And, 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 you know, Godzilla was a metaphor like for the bomb, even, you know, mm. that's why it was caused by radiation. Um, and Cloverfield was very much post nine 11 Godzilla where everyone is recording everything. Right. And right. that was kind of a deconstruction of the, the kaiju genre in a modern thing. Cabin in the Woods, obviously a deconstruction. Um, World War Z, I liked a lot more than most people liked. Um, I did not like, was, but... Oh, no, no. I don't blame anyone for disliking World <laughs> War Z, but I actually was totally down with it. Um, nowhere near like what the book was or whatever, but the book, World War Z was in and of itself a deconstruction of the the zombie genre um but bad times of the old royale just was a clever thriller it didn't feel like a deconstruction of anything 
which is fine. Right, right. Um, but again, we've just... Man, we're going to hate when X-Force comes out. Because X-Force is just going to be like an okay Deadpool 3. And we're going to be like, man, it didn't have nearly <laughs> enough twists. Like, Right, like, right. <laughs> and I haven't seen... Um, and, and, you know, The Martian is very much a deconstruction of high sci-fi. Yeah, and I, uh, Dare, Daredevil is apparently just good. I don't know. I haven't seen more than two episodes of it. I, I know a I lot of people love it, but I've never people, watched people it. People go nuts for it. Yeah, I don't I don't know how, how involved he was. It might have just been one of those things where he started it and then didn't. Oh, no, it's looking uh-huh. like he was the showrunner. Okay, so oh, okay. that's fine. Um, so we'll leave that out, but in general, but no, this was not, this was not a Cloverfield. Hmm. There there you have it. That's that's definitive. I think. Is this the first Um, time something has not been a Cloverfield? I think so. And that speaks volumes to how much we maybe didn't like this movie, but we're not really (laughs) quite sure. Uh, (laughs) Um, you know what? One quick thing I just wanted to mention before we wrap up, um, so we, we just did an episode on First Man, yeah. which is uh, written, written and directed by Damien Chazelle. And maybe you knew this, okay. but I sure as shit didn't. I learned this while researching for the episode. Um, did you know Damien Chazelle's one of the writers on 10 Cloverfield Lane? <sighs> did I know that? I don't think so. Hmm. Huh. No, oh, no, no. I did know that. I did know that then. I, I know. No, he did the rewrites. Um, the Whiplash guy. See, I I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, no, I I know that. That's uh, crazy. Because everyone thought that he came in and put the aliens in at the end. Um, because he did the rewrites, and that was a part of the change from the rewrites. But I believe the director said uh-huh. that by the time he got the script, the aliens were already in it, and that most of his rewrites were polishing dialogue. And if that's uh, the case. Man, he he hit it out of the park. I haven't I haven't seen Fuck Whiplash, yeah. but I've seen clips of the characters talking in Whiplash, and that is good yeah. dialogue. Oh, Wh- Whiplash is fantastic. And, and um, Ten Cloverfield Lane has great dialogue. Yeah, his movies have kind of gone on a little bit of a downward slope for me. Did, did he do um, La La Land too? Yeah, yeah, he. he I haven't seen La that, Land, which is weird. Which like... I, I liked a lot. I liked it a lot. Um, First Man's my least favorite of his movies, but it's still good. But uh, it's definitely my least favorite. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Whiplash is just phenomenal. And now that I know that Ten Cloverfield Lane is one of his movies, uh, at least partially, um, it goes in the good ones pile, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I it, it very distinctly was he came in for rewrites. I remember that yeah. once you're saying which guy. I was actually about to say, like, oh, is that the Whiplash guy? Um, yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> Interesting. But... <laughs> well, this was, a, this was a really fun conversation. Uh, Ryan, you got anything you want to plug before we wrap up? Um, no, I think we're, we're past, we're past cage fest now. So nothing to plug that. I guess we'll have to watch looking glass by Nicholas cage and do, um, do a retrospective. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've got fun. Um, yeah. So no, nothing, nothing super to pitch besides, of course, everything is a Cloverfield. Keep an eye out for that. Oh, Clover Lord's coming out soon. We're going to have to do an yes. episode on that. Yeah, we will. We will do that one for sure. And I don't care if it is or isn't, it is. It is. So, yeah. <laughs> hey there, 
podcast listeners. I'm Brian. And I'm James. And we're your hosts of A Piece of Pie, the queer film podcast. Every episode, we're going to take two movies or more, compare them, contrast them, and talk about them. Sometimes we talk about things like Terrence Malick and his use of handheld cameras or his sparse dialogue. And sometimes we talk about Alex Garland and how he mirrors things in both story and visuals. Sometimes we just talk about Chris Evans and his butt. Or Meryl Streep and how she might have farted her way to an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So join us. We're on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Great. Um, that might just be you, James. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about bad times at the El Royale. I want to thank Ryan Darty for joining me again. And I want to thank you for hanging in there for an hour and 42 minutes. I'm going to keep my end of the episode spiel really short this time because, uh, yeah, that's a long podcast episode. But you know what? If, if, if we're having fun, um, I'm keeping it. I don't care how long it goes. I I hope you don't care. Let me know if this was a slog for you, but uh, hopefully not. Hopefully you're still listening. But anyway, uh, make sure you subscribe on whatever your podcast app of choice is. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Five stars would be awesome. Uh, you can follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. You can join our Facebook group, Piecing It Together, a movie discussion group. And we'll be back with two more episodes next week because we are filling out October with a whole lot of episodes. There, I did that quick. I'm going to leave you with a piece of music. I don't know which one yet, but I'm going to throw it in here in the mix here in one second as soon as I say bye. Bye, guys.
and All Points West. Thank you.